Take your Bible and turn to Hebrews, at least in this series. Hebrews chapter 13. This morning we are going to look at verse 7 through verse 25. Uh, this, this series uh, took 31 sermons, so if you want to go back and listen to it, in July, there's 31 days in July. You can hear one every day. All right, let's uh, stand together in honor of God's word, if you're capable, and then let's read together Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not let, be led away by diverse or strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from that which who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the approach, reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good. And to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us that we are sure that we have, that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, may the God of peace who brought again and again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, send you greetings. Grace be with you all. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for this, this entire book, um, this letter written so long ago and yet so profoundly relevant to our day. And Father, we just ask now that as we finish this, Lord, that the things that you showed us in your word would resonate with us for the rest of our lives. And Father, there would be things that you spoke to us that would not depart from us. And Father, these amazing truths, the centerpiece of Jesus Christ, would go forth, uh, Father, that this word would continue to bear fruit in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we now come to the conclusion of uh, the letter uh, that we call the book of Hebrews. This, this letter has... Basically, if I had to reduce it down to, to one theme to describe the whole, it would be the supremacy of Christ in and over all things. This whole time, as we have gone through each and every verse of the book of Hebrews, uh, I have referred to the author of, of this book as the writer of Hebrews. Uh, today... Uh, at the end of the series, I can, with 100% certainty, tell you who the writer of Hebrews is. 
A lot of scholars have debated uh, over this for uh, many, many years. Uh, New Testament theologians uh, have written great books, dissertations have been written about this. And so it may seem presumptuous or arrogant on my part to tell you that I know who the author is, but I'm telling you that I do. The author of the book of Hebrews is the Holy Spirit. And yeah, sure, he used some human author to pen the words. Uh, we have no clue who that is. But the Holy Spirit wrote it through whoever that was. And after all of these, these months of, of studying this book, verse by verse, word for word, there is no doubt in my mind that the author of this book was inspired by the Holy Spirit. These are not human words. Uh, the truth packed into to these 13 chapters is so profound and so beautiful that there's no human being on this planet who could pen these, these words. And you can always tell this about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, to know if the Holy Spirit is working, I think the greatest test of all is whether the Spirit is pointing to Jesus Christ. And that's what we find in the book of Hebrews. The whole book is pointing to Jesus. Jesus is literally on every page. Jesus is the subject of every page. In fact, we know from the book of Hebrews that not only is Jesus the main theme and subject of the, the letter of Hebrews, but the book itself teaches us that Jesus is the, the main theme and, and subject of the entirety of the scriptures. This is a book about Jesus. And man, it has been, it has been a, a treat to have uh, been able to dig into this every single week and then come here on Sunday and, and proclaim uh, to you. Usually around Friday, I'm just going, oh man, I can't wait. I can't wait to tell them what I have discovered this week. And I, I feel like at this point, uh, coming to the end of this book, I, I feel a lot like I do when I come to the end of a novel that I really love. I love novels. I, I, I love the thicker they are, like those tomes, the better, right? I want to just spend like a good month, an 800-page novel. And, uh, and so this is a little short of that. I, I did kind of think it humorous that he says at the very end, I've written to you briefly. Uh, it, was like, it took us 31 weeks of briefly going through this. But uh, when I get to the end of a novel, I kind of have this feeling of like, oh, I don't want to finish this thing, you know, because it's like these characters in, in, the, in the novel have kind of come to life, and it's like they're real people, you know, and it's like, man, when I get to the end of this, there's kind of this, this weird feeling of, oh, I can't just pick up another novel. It's like I'd be betraying, you know, all these people that I've gotten to know, and uh, there's the temptation. Uh, I, I know people who do this. I, I, I'm not one of them, but there's a temptation to... Just go back and to page one and start over again. So we're not going to do that. All right, you don't have to worry about that. Uh, 31 more weeks in Hebrews. But, but I believe that I could actually go 31 more weeks in the book of Hebrews and say something totally different. Because uh, it's, it's just so profound and so rich. Well, it, it's, uh, I, I'm dreading getting to the end of this, but... Conclude it, we, we must. And so the Spirit-inspired writer of Hebrews gives the recipients of Hebrews his final instructions. This is kind of his last word. And so he finishes with a word to the church about the subject of leadership. Leadership. Specifically, how the church can value and validate the leaders that have been put in charge over them. How, how to make their, their, their work a, a joy instead of a burden. But as we shall see in this message, this is not a departure 
from the centrality of Christ. He doesn't say, you know, 12 chapters of Jesus, oh, and just let me give a word here about leaders at the end. No, we're, we're still on the same theme of, of the centrality of Christ because the Spirit-filled leader, because the Spirit is in that leader, is, is going to do what the Spirit does, and that's point to Jesus. And so the, the, the task then... Uh, of, of Jesus and his leaders are to continually uh, continue to point to him. This is a, a vital message in the life of the church. In fact, Jesus himself, uh, I think we could conclude, made his last sermon about leadership. You'll recall that during the Last Supper with his disciples, uh, before his death, he took on the task of becoming the house servant. And he uh, wrapped a towel around him and he washed his disciples' feet. And then he says, this is his message, go and do likewise. That's leadership according to Jesus right there. Now, it's concerning to me that when it comes to leadership in the church, that I believe in America that we're on the verge of a leadership crisis right now. Uh, enrollment in seminaries, and I'm talking across the board, are, are, have dropped 50% in the last decade. Over 50% in the last decade. If you go to Southwestern Seminary right down the road, 15 minutes from here, uh, it's a ghost town. I often uh, go there, I still love the library, uh, so... Such a great library, great quiet place, but it's become a very quiet place. I go there, uh, went there not very long ago to meet Mossy for coffee, and I was like, Mossy, where is everybody? There was nobody there. When I was there, that place was, there was people everywhere, outside, inside, students, in the, the, the cafeteria area, there's just people everywhere. They got a new coffee shop now, there's nobody in there. Uh, and I literally counted, and this wasn't during the summer months, this was back there in the uh, the end of the uh, spring semester, uh, every person that I saw was, was wearing like a, a work shirt. Not a student, but a worker. I was like, where, where is everybody? I literally went to have a little bit of a reunion tour, and I went to my old classrooms one by one by one, and they, every single one of them were empty. Nobody. I think, what is happening? What is happening? I asked Mossy, I said, where is everybody? He said, I don't know, nobody's here. And, and, and that's just kind of happening. Uh, there's a few seminaries that are, that are doing uh, well, but o across the board, uh, it seems that nobody is signing up for ministry anymore. Well, Jesus told us to pray for uh, workers because the harvest is plentiful. And I think one of the things that has is, is caused this is, is a lot of people don't believe that the harvest is plentiful right now. It's, it's rather difficult, toiling labor, uh, which, which to me is, is, is a good sense, the kind of thing you want to say, all right, so let's see who the real leaders are, right? Who, who's ready to, to sign up for a little bit of, of toil and labor and, and difficulty? And all of a sudden, you know, the crowds disperse. I remember uh, several years ago when, when Michael and I uh, went to Southwestern, uh, we went there to do a, uh, a recruit. It was on like a big kind of day where they had churches come in and, and uh, trying to recruit new students. And so I was like, let's do this. So we set up our... <laughs> our uh, our tent thing. I remember we had it at VBS, the one with the holes in it. And, and we get out there, right, and there's all these, these rather large area churches that are there, and they've got, you know, they got these incredible setups. Right, there's one, we're set up next to one, and they got this big, like, Wheel of Fortune thing, and it's like, spin the wheel. And they spin the wheel, and it was like, oh, you want a new Bible. Oh, you want a new theology book. Oh, look at what you get. A T-shirt. And we're over there, man. We got, you know, we got a table and a, and a tore-up tent and an ice chest. That's our whole thing. 
right? It's like, we got Cokes, we got some water. And, and so we decided what we were going to do is, is we went with this whole different angle. It's like, all right, all right, let's just, let's just own it, right? Let's not try to fake this. Let's just own this thing and, and let's see what happens. And so people would come up and they're like, hey, we're Crestmont Baptist Church. Guess what? You want to come to work? Man, you'll be on the front lines here. Man, we're struggling. You can't possibly get paid if you come, right? You're going to work. We'll work your tail off, and it's going to be difficult, and, and it's going to be frustrating. And so, man, I don't know what that church is offering, T-shirts and all that stuff, but if you really want some hands-on ministry, we're your place. And they take our Coke and <laughs> spin the wheel, you know. I don't think... Uh, I don't think we ever got anybody off of that deal, you know. We did get Ricky. Ricky, you know, that was kind of similar, uh, not from that event, but yeah, yeah. So we got, we got Rick uh, out of that. But anyway, you know, it's, uh, that's kind of the world we live in today. That's the reality of, of church life. And, and uh, these young people, nobody wants to go to an existing church. If there is anybody there, they're training to plant churches which is great. We need church plants, but we also need people to come in to existing churches and, and pastor people. Well, God has set up his church to be led by servant leaders, appointed leaders that he has appointed and, and, and the church body. And he, he gives us here in this text, he gives us three responsibilities that the church has towards its leaders as his last work. And those, those three instructions are to remember, to follow, and to pray. Sounds like a, a sermon outline right there, so let's dig in. Verse 7, he says, remember your leaders. Remember your leaders. Well, the Greek word for remember doesn't mean that the church has forgotten them. It means to call them to mind, to intentionally keep them in your, your thinking, in your mind. Leaders here refers to those, I want to be very, very specific, because this is a crazy day and age. Leaders refers to those who have been called and appointed by God to positions of influence. This isn't talking about uh, self-appointed leaders but God-appointed leaders. There, there are many churches that are, are not led by uh, called people. They're led by some guy who uh, is, uh, basically leads, but he's, he leads not because he's called. He leads because he's an old coot on a power trip who has been at the church longer than anybody else, usually has more money than everybody else, and he leads by intimidation been in those churches. Forget those people, right? That's not who we're called to remember. Remember the called out ones, those recognized for their gifting and their calling. And here they're designated as those who spoke the word of God to you. That's specifically who they are. They spoke the word of God to you. So you can recognize them because they speak the word of God to you. Uh, they don't speak to you to tickle your ears. They don't speak to you their own agenda. They don't speak to you the trendiest new viewpoint. They don't speak to you things that are contradictory to the scriptures. They speak to you the word of God. And if they don't, if they don't, then do not let them lead you. I don't care how cool they are. I don't care how charismatic they are. Do not let them lead you. So what exactly is it that we're called to remember? Remember your leaders. Well, specifically, we are to remember their words. And second, we're to remember their ways. Remember their words and remember their ways. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and thus imitate their faith. So the number one job 
of, church, of the church's leaders is to speak to the people the word of God. The power comes not from the personality of the leader, but from the proclamation of the word of God. Um, speaking of his work during the Reformation, Martin Luther uh, wrote these words. He says, take me, for example, I opposed indulgences and all papists, but never by force. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my, with my Philip of Amsterdorf, the words so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. Well, verse 8 gives us the gauge of how to measure what should be taught by your leaders. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the leader's words have one main focus because the word of God has one main focus, and that's Jesus. And so the message of Jesus never gets old. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We never move on to other things. And read the sermons in the book of Acts. They had one point. Jesus. Jesus. They had one point and it was Jesus. Jesus is the point. And the same Jesus they proclaimed yesterday is the same Jesus that we proclaim today. Now the world will never radically uh, change in a lot of ways over the last 2,000 years, hasn't it? It's changed radically in the last 10 years. But in spite of all of mankind's advancements, Here's the fact, we're still sinners, we still can't save ourselves, Jesus is still our only hope. So what happened on a hill 2,000 years ago outside the walls of Jerusalem is still our only hope in spite of our modern, technologically sophisticated 21st century world. And then check this out, it says that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Guess who will be the subject matter of heaven for all eternity? Jesus. Jesus. So if he's going to be, if heaven's all centered on him, then we might as well start practicing. It's the job of, of the church member uh, to, to take in the teaching of God's word. Right? Uh, to, to, to receive what God wants to speak to them. The leader can serve up a great meal, but you still have to eat it for it to have any effect. Amos 8.11 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a, a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. I, I read that passage and I notice that the famine is not so much uh, of the words of the Lord, but the hearing of the words of the Lord. History has shown many occasions when there was famines in the land prior to the Reformation, huge famine in the land prior to every single revival, every single great awakening, there is famine of hearing the word in the land. Verse 9, therefore says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. That would be teachings that have another subject other than Jesus. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have benefited those devoted to them. So a famine of hearing results in being led away through diverse, a lot of other subjects, and strange teaching, which are teachings that lead away from the doctrines of grace, which he says is good for the heart. The specific situation being addressed here is some sort of teaching about food regulations that are nothing but legalism. Jesus plus the Passover, perhaps. I, we don't really know what it is, but legalism is, is Jesus plus anything. And so the leader's words are gospel words. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. 
So when Christ is, is not proclaimed or when he is proclaimed but no one is listening, it says that the church, God's people, will quickly be led away. Led away from what? Led away from Jesus. Led away from the truth. Led away from salvation. And we're seeing this today. We're seeing entire denominations that are listening to the culture rather than the word of God. And this is about as unpopular of a statement as anybody can make these days, but I want to be clear because I believe it's the truth that affirming churches are not God-glorifying, attracting, Holy Spirit-attracting churches. They have grieved the Holy Spirit. We live in a time unprecedented in history for false teaching like never before. And the reason it's so unprecedented is not just simply the amount of false teaching, it's how much access to false teachings we now have. You got some new cyber guru tickling ears and drawing huge crowds. Charismatic leaders who would go, oh, you know, there's this whole group of thousands of people following someone and it's all based on basically personality versus proclamation. There's always some new celebrity pastor ready to entertain the masses. But here's what you need to ask yourself, whoever you listen to, right? At the end of the day, after you listen to somebody, do they make you think, wow, what a great speaker that is? Or do they make you think, wow, what a great Savior we have. That's what you need to know. Because who's the Holy Spirit pointing to? That speaker? Absolutely not. Always to Jesus. Listen, man, I hope you listen to other leaders. Hope I'm not your only, you know, chef. I hope you're listening to a lot of other leaders besides myself who teach the Word of God. There's some great ones out there. There is some benefit to the access that we have. There are so many great preachers and teachers of God's Word out there. If you want a list, I'll give them to you. But my desire is for you to grow, right? That, that's my desire. Those who sound spiritual but are not pointing you to Jesus, that I want to say, why are you listening to that? Stop. Uh, remember the words of your leaders. Second, we are to remember your leaders' ways. Verse 7, consider the outcome of their way of life. Their way of life, their ways. The leader not only proclaims the gospel with the words, but also with their ways. A, a gospel-shaped life is a cross-shaped life, right? Uh, it, it's vertical in our relationship with God, and it's horizontal in relationships with others. So loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. So we see the heart of the gospel lived here in verses 10 through 13. That's what it says. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin or burn outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let's go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. In the Old Testament, system, sacrificial system, the priest offered up the sacrificial animals and they had a right, according to the scriptures, to cook the animals that they sacrificed. They used the blood to sacrifice it, but they could still eat the meat from the animals they sacrificed. But there was one sacrifice that they were completely restricted from doing that, and that was the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. In that case, the blood of the animal was sprinkled on the mercy seat, but the body of the animal was cast outside of the camp. And it, it was used to kind of be a picture of the, the scapegoat from the Old Testament, where the sins of the people were, were placed on a goat, and that goat was cast out of the camp, carrying away the sins of the people. 
And so here, it's that image that the Holy Spirit uses to show us the way of the spiritual leader. Right? The leader is one who, like Jesus, is one who suffers, is made to be nothing for the sake of others that they may flourish. Jesus suffered so that other people could be sanctified through his blood, it says. They're not out to climb some career ladder. They're not out to use the people to build their little kingdom. Christian leaders, ironically, are first servants. It's the way of the cross. So instead of seeking prominence and prestige, they find themselves, just like Jesus, outside the camp, not in the center of it. Who was in the center of Jerusalem? The Pharisees. Outside the camp is a metaphor for outside the place of worldly power. Outside the camp is a place of suffering and reproach. It is the way of downward mobility in order to lift others up. It gives up so that others can go up. In other words, the spiritual leader operates according to the way of humility. Paul Tripp in his, his book, Lead, which uh, I recommend to leaders, says this, Humility means that each leader's relationship to other leaders is characterized by an acknowledgement that he deserves none of the recognition, power, or influence that his position affords him. It means knowing as a leader that as long as sin still lives inside of you, you will need to be rescued from you. <laughs> Humility means you love serving more than you crave leading. Humility means that you love serving more than you crave leading. It means owning your inability rather than boasting in your abilities. It means always being committed to listen and learn. Humility means seeing fellow leaders not so much as serving your success, but serving the one who called each of you. It means being more excited about your fellow leaders' commitment to Christ than you are about their loyalty to you. It's about fearing the power of position rather than craving it. It's about being more motivated to serve than to be seen. Humility is always being ready to consider the concern of others for you, confess what God reveals through them, and commit to personal change. Let me put it a little more uh, personal to us. Cherish would never, ever tell you about the hours invested that goes into st stuff that we don't see. We see, you know, the, the finished product, but we don't see what went into it. Um, Ricky will never tell you about the prayers prayed. Jim will never tell you about the hours spent here at the church, and that's on top of a full-time job. But when nobody's here, he is dealing with air conditioning issues and everything else. Um, Daphne is never going to boast about her time and energy expelled on, on children, on kids. Uh, one of the most uh, least thought of and, and, and thankless positions, I think. Why not? Because that is the work outside the camp. That's the hidden work. It's only seen by God. When, when the Apostle Paul was addressing the church in Corinth, th there were these so-called super apostles. <laughs> I love that name, you know, big S on their chest. Super apostles. And they had come and gained influence over a lot of people. And Paul had planted this church and he had won so many of these people to Christ, but now they're going, Paul, who? These guys, these new leaders, they're awesome. 
<laughs> They're so stinking cool, right? Paul, Paul's a nerd. And, and, and so these so-called super apostles, man, they're slick. They're smooth talking. They're shiny. They're charismatic types. And, man, everybody's just kind of drawn to them. And, uh, by the way, people haven't changed much in two millennia. And Paul is using what I call a little sanctified sarcasm uh, by comparing himself and the other apostles to these so-called super apostles in 1 Corinthians 4. I love this. Verses 8 through 17. Check it out. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign and that without us. How I, I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. Like those condemned to die in their arena, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We're fools for Christ. But you, you are so wise in Christ. We are weak. You, you're strong. We are, uh, you are honored. We're dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth. The garbage of the world, right up to this moment, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you, as my dear children, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord, who will remind you of my way of life. There it is in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Isn't that amazing? So he's like going, ah, oh, man, we're the scum of the earth. Maybe that should be a great name for a seminary. Scum of the earth, theological seminary. A spiritual leader is first and foremost a follower. Right? Following Jesus is the aim. Not being a great leader is the primary pursuit. Remember your leaders. Remember their words and their ways. Secondly, secondly in the text, it says follow your leaders. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now here we find a cycle that is true in every single church, every church without exception. Healthy churches make joyful leaders who make healthy churches. The opposite is also true. Unhealthy churches make miserable leaders who perpetuate unhealthy churches. So it doesn't take a majority uh, of people for that truth to be seen. Uh, it doesn't take a majority of people to stink up a church. Just a few who make it their aim to wage war against the leader or leaders. I've been there. The leader is, is, is just a puppet in their minds, someone that they are going to control. But when the leader refuses the strings, then all hell breaks loose. Satan has ruined many, many churches with this tactic. So a smart and healthy church will want to have joyful leaders for their own benefit. Because it benefits the church. And man, I get it, man. We're slow today to trust leaders in just about every single area of our society. Man, they have let us down. And now because of, you know, social media and, and media in general, uh, we have a front row seat to every leader that falls. How many leaders have we seen that happen to in the last few years? Politicians, uh, coaches, 
college presidents, ministry leaders, TV personalities, pastors, priests, dropping like flies. So, so words like obey and submit when it comes to leaders, that's not exactly an appealing statement in today's society. But if the aim of the leader is not to build a platform, but to nourish and care for your soul, well, that's kind of a different ballgame, right? What if following the leader meant following them because they're trying to lead you into deeper communion with Jesus? What if the leader's aim was not to build a bigger church, but to build you up to become a better follower of Jesus? Isn't that what's suggested here in the passage? It seems to be. Uh, they're keeping watch over your souls. Because those who have to give an account. I, I believe memorizing that verse right there should be the seminarian's first day assignment. It certainly seems that we have allowed the American leadership culture to define leadership in the church. Right? The whole Bible has this totally different aim. We're not building empires. Right? We're not building corporations. We're not even building churches. That's Jesus' job. We are builders of souls. We're not to seek uh, the glory of achievement, but the glory of God. And so the way you can make your leader's life more joyful is to engage yourself in soul work. Right? To take interest in the state of your soul and in the soul of other people. Uh, I, I was, uh, Charles Spurgeon one of my heroes, was one of the first mega church pastors. Uh, he died and his membership at the Metropolitan Tabernacle was, oh my goodness, this thing, you're, speaking of dying, was uh, 5,300 people, 5,300 people, which by today's standard, we're like going, well, that, is that a mega church, you know? That's so like a big First Baptist but for his day, that is a huge, huge number. That's a ridiculous number. And especially since most of the members that came part of that church came through conversion. Now churches grow based upon the fact that all, they're, they're basically proselyting from everybody else. Back then, back then, you didn't just join a church. All right? You couldn't go, hey. That church is hip and happening. I think I'll join that one. No, back then, you had to be discipled first, and then you had to be interviewed before you could join. This is what uh, an elder wrote by the name, uh, well, I don't know the elder's name, but he's, he's, he's writing this about some guy named James Melbourne's membership interview from Spurgeon's church. Here's what he said. This good man wishes to join the church because his wife has applied for membership. He has frequently heard Mr. Spurgeon and prefers his preaching to any he ever heard. I don't think he has the faintest idea of the gospel. I suppose he's sober, honest, industrious, and willing to join a church or do anything else which is reputable and respectable. He reads part of the Bible sometimes and thinks it's all very good. He knows no preference. He does not recollect having ever particularly prayed to God for anything in his life. I'm astonished how any man could sit under our pastor's ministry one Lord's Day and be so entirely ignorant of his own ignorance of the gospel. I spoke to him of the new birth and gave him a ticket for Brother Hank's class. <laughs> I just read that. I was like, that's awesome. First of all, I don't know who his Brother Hank is, but how cool that you got to have a ticket to go to his class. <laughs> Secondly, I'm just sitting there going, wow. I mean, in, in our day and age, it's like uh, somebody walks in the door and we're like, oh, a potential member. Oh. And if they would walk the aisle, man, we don't care anything about their past, right? We're hanging on, uh, we're grabbing onto their heels. Thank you, Lord, we got one. 
In that day, they're like going, uh huh, glad you visited, glad you're here, glad you're interested. Now we're going to put you uh, through class. Oh, and then you're going to sit down and you're going to interview with one of our pastors. And then that pastor is going to determine whether or not you actually understand the gospel. And if you don't understand the gospel, you're getting a ticket to Brother Hank's class. I love it. Spurgeon once shared about a meeting he had with a group of Scottish pastors who asked him how he was able to grow such a large church. I want you to listen to what, he, what his reply was. Somebody asked me how I got my congregation. I never got it at all. I did not think it my business to do so, but only to preach the gospel. Why, my congregation got my congregation. Ordinary members reaching out, inviting, sharing the gospel. Spurgeon nursed their souls on Sunday. They went out and practiced what they heard on Monday, and the result was a joyful leader in a flourishing church. Third, pray for your leaders. Verses 18 and 19, he says, pray for us. Pray for us. We are sure that we have, uh, make sure that we have, a, pray that we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you, more earnestly to do this in order that we may be restored to you sooner. The last thing I think is the most important thing. The fact that the last thing will help you both to remember your leaders and follow your leaders makes it the most important thing to pray for your leaders. Uh, your, your, your church staff is everything that you've prayed them to be it's unlikely we will ever be more than that. Let me, let me give you two reasons why you should pray for church leaders, all your church leaders, all church leaders. In this church, man, in every church, uh, every time I pass by a church on Sunday morning, I pass by quite a few on my way here, and I pray for that church, that God would be honored uh, that morning. You can do the same thing throughout the week. Pray for the leaders, every church you pass Two reasons why. Reason number one is leaders don't wear capes. Church leaders don't have a big S on their chest. We're not super apostles or super anything, right? Uh, we don't fly with the angels. We walk on soil. We got dirt on the bottom of our shoes and other things, right? We're just real people. Just like everyone else, we have the same struggles, we have the same temptations as everyone else, we have the same weaknesses, we have the same limitations, we have the same personality limitations, we have the same uh, skill and gift limitations, we have education and experience uh, limitations, we uh, are, are vulnerable, we have wounds, uh, we have anxieties, just like everyone else, maybe even more. But listen to their quest in the verse Pray that we might have a clear conscience and desire to act honorably. Do you know why this leader asked for that prayer? Because he needed it. He needed it. He, he says, pray for my desires that I will want to act honorably. Right? Which brings me to the second reason you should pray for your leaders. Right? We, we don't wear capes. But leaders wear bullseyes. Satan's not stupid when it comes to, to warfare strategy, right? Take out the leaders first. That's what's the way you want to go. Get them to forget uh, that they are servants and make them ambitious to build a name for themselves. Uh, get them to be distracted from Jesus and then preach in order to tickle people's ears. Get them on a power trip and lure them away from the cross. Lured them inside of the camp instead of outside of it. Get them focused on numbers instead of souls. Get them so busy doing ministry that they don't make time to simply sit and be with Jesus. Leaders are, are, are vulnerable to Satan's devices. And so they desperately, they desperately need the prayers of the church. And we may never see what our prayers prevented from happening. You ever think of that? 
We always think, what did our prayers accomplish? But what did our prayers prevent? We, we may never know. Uh, at least in, you know, in this life. But here's what you want to, you will see it if we're prayerless. So let us all see our role and responsibility towards the health of the church. We need one another. People need leaders and leaders need the people. Well, final word, the, the author now closes his letter with a benediction and a final appeal. He says in his benediction, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. He ends by reminding us of the one true great leader, the, the great shepherd of the sheep. That's the one we're all following. The great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus, the one risen from the dead, the one whose blood sealed the covenant of our salvation. He says, may he equip you. May he, Jesus, equip you. Right? The word equip means to prepare to fix, to put in working order. It reminds me of a mechanic fixing a car, right? It reminds me of a coach preparing a team. God's aim is to equip you for doing his will. It's what it says. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Now, Here's what's fascinating about that, because that is the exact same word we find in Ephesians chapter 4, 11, and 12 concerning the church's leaders. He gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to equip, there it is again, the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. So when you put that together... Right? God appoints apostles, prophets, and pastor teachers to equip the church for what? Works, works of ministry to fix things to make them work. Works for ministry. The aim is not to fill your head with information. The aim is to equip you to do ministry so that the church may be built up. God equips us through giving us church leaders who equip us. Ultimately, it is God who does the equipping, but he uses means to accomplish his equipping work. So uh, what we have is a reminder here to all under-shepherds, which is what all leaders are, that ultimately the church belongs to Jesus. <laughs> Right? And the people belong to Jesus. They're not ours. He, he, he bought them with his blood, the blood of a brand new covenant. He is ultimately the one who equips them for every good work, and he just simply uses us as under-shepherds for that task. No other leader can save you. No other leader can sanctify you. There's only one great shepherd. Second, we're reminded that Jesus is the one that we ultimately follow. Some of you, uh, maybe nobody here, I don't know, maybe yes here, but it seems to be a really ongoing reality, especially in today's culture, that people in the church have been burned badly by leaders. Perhaps hurt by them, certainly disappointed by them. But no human leader was ever meant to be your perfect example or to sanctify your soul. That job is exclusively Christ's. Too many people have decided to walk away from the church because of some human, flawed human being. That's dumb. Don't do it. It is Jesus that we ultimately follow. Human leaders 
may have done a, a poor job representing Jesus, or maybe they did a great job representing Jesus, but they're not Jesus. And so the final word in Hebrews is the one we all have to hold firm until we see our, our great shepherd come, and that is this. Notice the last word, grace. Grace be with you all. I <laughs> love this. Grace. Leadership is done in the trenches. We need grace. Notice what he says. I love this. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. That sounds like a, a throwaway verse. Like I, I, I was tempted to say, no, I'm going I'm to preach one more just on that one. The author appeals to his readers one last time. And he says, man, bear with my word of exhortation. He doesn't mean, listen, he doesn't mean put up with it. Oh, come on, just bear with this. No, it's not what the word means. The Greek word means endure. Take this stuff and endure. We really don't know anywhere how the people responded to this letter. Did they decide to endure? Remember, this is written to people who are this close from turning away from Jesus and going back to Judaism. Did they decide to return to their old life? Did they hang on? And then we see this word about Timothy getting out of prison. Prison, right? Why was he in prison? Well, because of his faith. He was placed there for his faith. Leader in prison for his faith. So that pretty much right there encapsulates the role of leadership in the church. You invest in some who are changed. You invest in, in some who walk away. Sometimes you don't know what the result of your work is. And then you have all these trials along the way that goes with it. Listen, before you decide to be a church leader, get rid of every single romantic idea of what that looks like. It's not for the faint of heart. I think I heard, I think it was Spurgeon who said that, that uh, every single potential leader uh, or person uh, who says there's, God's called him to the ministry, my first task is to talk them out of it. I love that. I've done the same thing several times because if you can do that, if you can talk them out of it, they're probably not called. But if they're going, yeah, okay. I'll, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, bring it on. Then you're going, okay. Before you decide to be a church leader, man, just, just know that you are, you're getting a big target on you. But it's not all hardship, is it? he says greet all the leaders and all the saints in Italy I love that they're, they're fruits that last so he's going oh, it's not all hardship we, we have these other leaders that have have been risen up we have these these new saints these saints are, are the holy ones that have been uh, risen up that have been converted that have been been discipled there, there's fruit in this there's fruit that lasts Fruit that makes all the suffering worth it by far. But through it all, his last word is this. Grace. No matter how it goes down, no matter what happens, grace. Grace in the end. Grace be with you. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Hebrews. We thank you, Father, for uh, all of the beautiful truths therein. And, and I ask, Lord, that you help us to uh, take these truths into our, our souls. Uh, to, to find in them encouragement, to find in them the strength to endure, to find in them hope, to find in them uh, things related to seeing Christ in the midst of when all we see is crisis. And Father, I, I just praise you and I thank you, Father, for, 
for uh, how uh, we're a church that's small in number, and yet we have such a great volunteer base and so many. We've got the staff of a large church mainly because people felt God called them to serve without pay, to step into difficult positions, and I just praise God for that. We are truly blessed. I pray, Father, that we would be a church that shows them our love because we do love them. Father, we thank you for the privilege of serving. We thank you, Father. My, my prayer is that, uh, Lord, just like your word says, that we are to call out people. Uh, there's probably people in our midst who, who don't feel in any way whatsoever uh, that, that they are leaders. But, Father, we know that, uh, that some of the people that, that you tend to gravitate towards in making them leaders. And so I pray, Father, if there's anybody here today uh, who you're calling out, I pray, Father, give them just a, a sight of Christ instead of their own insignificance. May they see uh, the greatness of Christ and respond. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.